Hello, and welcome to Well Played, Sir, a board and card gaming podcast. I am Mike, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kane. Hello! Usually on this show, Kane and I will have a little back and forth about all the various games we've played over the last week or so, but today is going to be a little different. I will be recapping my experiences yesterday, where I had the privilege to play in what is called a mega game. This mega game is called Watch the Skies, and it was the second experience I had playing this game. The first time I played, I was a member of the press corps. This time, I got to be a member of the secret alien team. Since it's so fresh in my mind, I wanted to record this podcast today so I can recap all of my experiences. Let's get to the steak and potatoes, Mike. I want to hear all about this mega game. I am really excited. I got to play this yesterday. And I'll start by explaining what a mega game is. About a year ago, maybe less, I had first gotten wind of a mega game. It was on another board gaming website. They had done a quick recap video. I shouldn't say quick. It's about 40 minutes long. But when the game played is 8 hours, it needs to be 40 minutes long. It was in the UK, and the website was shut up and sit down. They did this nice, long 40-minute recap of their day. A mega game consists of dozens of players simultaneously playing a single game. They're all different kinds of mega games from different developers and different people that have made them. The particular one I played was called Watch the Skies. Imagine a giant model UN crossed with an alien invasion and XCOM. This game is very freeform, although there are rules and there are actual mechanics involved, but as they tell you when you first sit down, there isn't just going to be a winner and a loser, it's much more about the experience of playing this game and everyone will receive an epilogue at the end. The way the game works is there's a giant group of control between 10 and 20 people actually that need to run this game because we have about 60 players. The players are broken down into teams. In our game yesterday, there were eight teams of countries. So there was Brazil, United States, United Kingdom, Japan, China, Russia, and the last country was... I can't remember off the top of my head. But every game, depending on the number of players, there are a different number of countries. How are the, how are the countries decided? Control writes up an entire... Uh, overview of how the game's going to work. So they'll decide internally, maybe they want certain countries to feud, so they'll put all the countries in one space, maybe they'll have them spread out. Every game of this mega game is different because the objectives are changing, ever-changing, and a lot of them are pre-scripted by the actual players. So I feel you'll always have a couple of superpowers. You'll always have the U.S., you'll always have Japan... You'll always have the United Kingdom. And then depending on the number of players, will reflect how many countries you end up putting in. The first game I actually ever saw of this had over 300 players. So there were dozens and dozens of countries from a superpower like the United States down to maybe just South Africa. And the United States has more resources and these smaller little countries have less resources but they're ultimately playing their own game underneath this giant encompassing game. So 
Watch the Skies is, is hosted at a giant building. They'll rent out a space with all multiple rooms. And the reason you need the multiple rooms is because on each team, everyone has a unique role. So for any country, you'll have a head of state who basically runs everything in your country. You'll have a deputy head of state who's their direct liaison running around to different tables to talk to different teams. You have a lead scientist who has a full tech tree of things they can research. research. Think civilization, where you learn how to do one thing and it leads you to another thing and so on and so forth down this branch. Some of the technology, and most of the technology I should say, is science fiction, it's in the future, this game is happening now. So you're learning how to build better ships or better attacking, better defense, maybe a cure for a disease because everything layered in is going back to your country's objective. And every country has unique objectives. I've never gotten to play for a country, so I don't know what all those objectives may be. I know one of the games, the objective was for India to become the top-ranked science in the world. So they needed to research the most tech. Or another game I saw, Russia needed to unite the original Soviet Union. So on the first <laughs> turn, they annexed Ukraine. So uh, there's a lead scientist. There's also a military advisor. And he is the only person on your team allowed to go into the military room. This is a giant world map, think risk style, in which every country is represented and you have your own little units that you'll be deploying on your countries around the world. And the last role for your team is the diplomat. And their job is to go to the UN. Every turn they sit in the UN and they discuss worldwide crises and how to attack them, such as global warming is hitting, this country is flooding, what are you going to do? So different countries can invest money for positive PR or for resources or asking for help around the globe to affect your ultimately GDP. And when your GDP is raised or lowered, will uh, affect how much money you get every turn to spend. And on a turn, you need to spend on how many military troops you're putting out there. You need to spend it on your technology tree. You need to spend it on all various things, bribes or paying someone for information. Anything you want to do, you can pretty much do in this game. Now, it really wouldn't be fun if it was just a Model UN. Well, there's a whole other team that is made up of aliens. This is what I got to play. Yes, this is what I got to play yesterday. I got to be an alien. Now, this team is usually between 8 and 12 players, and they are isolated from everyone else. They have their own alien control on their moon base, if you will. And they're not free to walk around the room like all the other players are. So they're isolated, and every game, the alien's objective is completely unique. There are many, many different schemes the aliens can be running. Schemes that I've seen are, the Earth is ending, we're here to shepherd all the people off the planet. So our job is to get the world to disarm their missiles and become peaceful so that we can take you away. Maybe the aliens are just here to destroy you. Or in our case yesterday, the aliens were there just to strip mine the Earth of resources. We were an alien corporation. And we needed to... We couldn't destroy the world because our corporate headquarters would, look, would frown upon that. The space police get involved. We can't do that. So we can't just show up and start nuking the world 
because it looks bad for our corporation. But we could go down and get them to nuke each other. <laughs> or maybe just allow us to mine for resources and be on our way. This is where the game took a hard left turn for us. When our team was set, we get on a whole email chain, there's 10 aliens, and we were able to coordinate what our scheme was going to be to convince the humans that we were here to get the resources, but we couldn't tell them that. So the plan we concocted was to take over the Vatican. So we created an entire Vatican team of our alien team. We decided these couple of, three, these couple of people would be the Vatican. And their job was to be out on the floor and to be completely anti-alien because the aliens were going to spread a message that we were the one true religion and that everyone else had fallen off the path and we are the creators we're not getting here we're actually returning because you've fallen off the path you've lost your way and the Vatican's job was to tell people the aliens are not the foundation of our religion we are completely against them, and we're going to save you with all these holy relics. So they had the Ark of the Covenant. They had all these various things they created, the blood of a saint, all these things that they said, we can give to the people to save their ails, to save all of their problems. At one point, Japan had created nanobots. So the Vatican said, we have this blood that you can transfuse to your people, and it will save them. What the people didn't know was that this blood would protect the nanobots, but turn everyone into a tree. <laughs> of course, we made all these things up. All these holy relics were actually alien technology, and the entire religious foundation was a complete ruse. There was nothing to do with religion whatsoever. So we created this entire backstory to our game, and we had communication with the Vatican. Now, when I say the Vatican... Our players actually were dressed as the Pope and as a Cardinal. They had, <laughs> they had costumes on. They had this entire regalia. We developed this entire mini-game board that they placed on their table, and they used giant bishops to mark their levels, and these little churches to mark how much faith they received every turn. And it was this really elaborate little mechanism on the table that meant absolutely nothing <laughs> it was just a board so that when people would walk by the Vatican, it looked, it looked like, like they were playing their own game. Exactly. That's but deep crazy. down, they were nothing but subterfuge. So the way the game boils down, now that we have our countries have goals, our aliens have goals, the other third group of people is the press corps. This is what I played the first time I ever got to play the game. The right. press corps' job is to write stories. So they're going around to different countries, requesting interviews, publishing articles every turn about what was going on in the world. And the press had a direct influence on a country's GDP. If they wrote favorably, they get better PR and they'll accrue more credits every turn. If they wrote negative stories, countries could be negatively affected and receive less credits to do their actions every turn. So you're constantly getting pulled to different tables. We want to have a press conference. We want to give you an exclusive interview. The press, their game is trying to win the Pulitzer. 
So they're getting points based on how many articles they release, when they announce the arrival of aliens, all these things that they need to do. So everyone is playing their own little games to try to win underneath this giant guise of a mega game. That's so fascinating. It really was this awesome, really cool social experiment. Now, I'll drill down to into what the actual turns are. Every turn is 30 minutes long. Once a turn starts, everyone runs off to do whatever job they need to do. Thankfully, because I was a member of the press corps, I was actually able to see all these things originally. Because as I I mentioned, as an alien, we're trapped in our own room. So yesterday I spent the entire day, more or less, in a single room, just scheming against the humans. So... The way the rounds are broken down, the first 15 minutes, everyone goes off and does their specific job. So the ambassadors will head to the UN to discuss, the diplomats rather, will head off to the UN to discuss what crisis is occurring. The military advisors go to a map room where they're allowed to place units on a board and just see where everyone lies. The scientists go to another room where they're rolling dice and using resources to discover these different technology trees. The head of state is staying at the table with the deputy head of state and communicating with all the different countries. You're free to walk around between the countries, but only militaries are involved in the military room. The UN can have closed sessions. The scientists, you really want to stay out of each other's way. After 15 minutes is up, everyone returns to your main table to go over what's happened. We got this new technology. We lost these pieces. We took this country. All the different things that occurred while they were out there. Every turn, each team is also given a briefcase filled with their credits for the turn or any information that they want blasted around between the countries. So they'll also get a newspaper telling about the turn's events. So every turn, you get a new update of here's a briefcase marked with your country with all of your goods for this turn. So you go back to your table, and you discuss what happened. At this point, uh, the terror track, which I should have brought about earlier, is affected as well. This is a one little number, kind of think pandemic, you have the outbreak track. There's this terror track, it goes to 250, and it can be positively influenced by reducing the number, or negatively influenced. Firing nukes, well there goes a lot of terror. If you incite riots around the world, there's a lot of terror. If you pass cap and trade, you can reduce the terror. If you pass nuclear disarmament, you can reduce the terror track as well. Players are more or less free to do whatever they want. The job of all the control is yes and. They're kind of an improv team. So, for example, yesterday, Japan, I found this out after the game was over, was trying to develop AI and take over their entire country with an AI. (laughs) So they basically researched science enough to become a self-aware AI, and then they started receiving their orders directly from Control. Control came over to them and said, your game is basically over. You've already accomplished your goal, so now we're telling you what you need to do because the AI is telling you what to do. Uh, Which was cool, and that was... I've never heard of that before. It was completely unique. Uh, they were trying to shoot off their DNA into space to continue the, their, perpetuate their species. Um, 
what other countries were doing things. Uh, Japan was originally doing the nanobots, as I said. That was the main thing, form this AI. That was what their goal was. The alien team, which is the angle I can speak from, here's what we did. Every turn, we're allowed to send out messages to all the countries. So we opened up the game, and we said to each country, we have not arrived, we have returned. Of the eight countries, we sent that to seven of them, except the U.S. The United States was on complete communication blackout. We ignored everything from them, and we wrote nothing to them. We decided on turn one, we're just going to ignore the United States because <laughs> we just want to piss them off. Because our job, we want to get them on edge. Right. So we send out messages. And the countries can return messages back to us, and we can correspond however we see fit. We basically put these in a little black box. Control comes over, takes the box, brings it out, and we exchange messages that way. We don't actually get to see them unless we rec request meetings, in which case we can have a secret meeting offside. Again, you can literally do whatever you want. So our first couple of turns were being very vague. Just, you have fallen off the path. You, you are not following what we set for you. The other thing that we brought along with us, we brought these pictures of famous historical figures that had third eyes. I should backtrack a second. Our costumes, we didn't wear costumes. Some people do. We all had stickers that we slapped in the middle of our forehead as a third eye. <laughs> so our entire basis was we were the third eye aliens that was our race so we had the shroud of Turin with Jesus' face on it with a third eye so we had an actual piece of cloth with Jesus' face and a third eye drawn on it that we released as official alien relics the Vatican was secretly disseminating this stuff out as well but they, the players didn't know this the Vatican was completely saying that we don't exist, we're not real, we're not the religion, but we're actually working with us to release things like a picture of Buddha with a third eye, or Thomas Jefferson with a third eye. And we were just trying to spin this narrative of, you all come from us, come back to the path. Which is all complete malarkey, because we just want to take their resources. <laughs> the entire religious angle is complete garbage. That's amazing. But the players don't know this. They think this could be the game mechanic. So they're asking, how do we get back on the path? What do we need to do? Please show us this path. And India really fed into all of this. And they already have religious uh, icons that have a third eye on it. So we didn't really need to stretch that far because they kind of play up that Hinduism, that third eye. So we dug right in on this facet. You guys didn't fall too far from the path. You guys are awesome. Can we build a temple in your country? And the temple was actually mining equipment to take the resources. <laughs> but they thought it was a temple. So we're going around this map, and we're just taking up specimens. We have an entire tech tree that we're going through. We're responding to messages in this little room. And the players really have no idea what's going on. One other thing that I should mention about the way this is set up, where we played it was at the NYU Metro Tech Game Center, and they had these projectors throughout the entire building that are all showing this live Twitter feed, more or less, of news stories. So wherever you went, you could see these news stories. So we had one in Alien Control, and we could see things. Uh, Vatican denounces aliens. Was Jesus an alien? What's going on? 
and they're trying to figure out what our actual scheme is. So we're just sitting there trying to slowly let them land, let us land these giant ships on the map. Like, hey guys, don't don't blow it out of the sky. We just we need to land. It's a temple, and it's just we're gonna take you away when it's done. We're gonna load you on it and beam you off. So the country is like, what do we need to do to be on that ship when you leave? So don't worry, you know, the good ones will take you, no problem. As a matter of fact, one of the turns, our military commanders came back to us, and they said, we don't know what you guys did on the diplomacy team, but they are not shooting at us anywhere. <laughs> they, were, they were letting us do whatever we wanted on the entire map. So we ended up landing these three giant structures, these giant purple, they were literally physical little things. They're, they're placeholders in the game for alien technology. Sometimes they're attack ships. Sometimes they're actual shuttles. So we had these three. We landed them in Antarctica, which incited a bunch of riots, but no one wanted to go and blow them up because they thought they needed to be there. But we were just down there to try to melt the polar ice caps because so we can do that. So in the middle of the game, we're kind of losing steam. We're not sure... They're, they're too friendly. The countries, we don't have really fighting with each other. So we're not getting... Which, on the one hand, is good because they let us land our things. But now we really need them to kind of blow each other up because it would be better for us if the planet was empty. Not if... <laughs> it would just make it easier to get the resources. It's just a lot easier if there are no people around. Right. So every, we, I, we want to try to sow a little dissent between them. And everyone just begging us for how they can help. So we end up asking them for DNA samples. So what happened with uh, America and your complete communications blackout? Well, around turn seven or so, because the game is played over 12 turns, they reached out to us and said, have you heard of the good news? That's all they said. So we replied back to them and said, uh, have you not been getting our messages? Maybe they've been intercepted. Maybe we should meet. So halfway through the game, we tell them, we've been trying to message you and you haven't gotten anything. We said, maybe Japan has been stealing them. <laughs> so they reached back, and they go... We, and we wrote secure. We used a different sticker on it to sign it from the aliens. We wrote secure transmission on it, and we sent it to them. So then they get back. Oh, this is the first message we've received. We should meet. So we say, that's a great idea. We just tell them, we're going to meet in Virginia. So we're going to send an envoy to Virginia to meet. In actuality, we needed to go to the U.S. to do some mining to get some extra money. So when we landed in America, the country didn't touch us. But we never met with the president. We mined what we needed to, and we got out. <laughs> As a matter of fact, the next turn, a control person came in the room, and they said, did you set up a meeting with America? And we said, technically, yes, but we're not going. So we completely stood up America on the meeting. <laughs> So they replied, we were at the meeting, you weren't, what happened? So we wrote back, in your language, WTF. We were at the meeting, you weren't at the meeting. So we tell them, would you like to meet again, perhaps at the House of White? The U.S. responds, sure, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue will meet. So we're like, all right, we're going to go meet them at the White House. So we'll table that for a minute. Because that comes up later on when we actually go to meet them. Okay. While we're communicating with all these other countries, 
we start asking for DNA samples because another part of our job is to get human specimens to test these products because we're a corporation. We want to test space makeup or space, you know, hair Rogaine, whatever it is. So <laughs> people are turning into trees because of this blood we gave them. We also gave them other real, uh, the Shroud of Turin. I forget how it neg negatively affected them. We we're giving them all these relics. They were actually harming them. It looked like it was a good thing. And then it would destroy them a turn later. So we said, listen, stop listening to the Vatican. They're giving you bad information. We can help you. Give us some DNA samples. So we started off, we'll ask for four. And they said, forget it, just ask for more. So we said, can you give us ten DNA samples? We only needed four, but we were going to use them for different things. So they replied back, we can send you ten DNA samples. And also, France will give you another five. So we have 15 DNA samples for nothing. Like, we should just be asking everyone for everything. They're just—they're so nice. They trust us. We're not attacking them. They're giving us whatever we want. So then Russia reaches out and says, I heard you needed DNA samples. We're going to give you the DNA of our great leader, Lenin. So we look at this, and we ask Control, can we clone Lenin? <laughs> so Control looks at us. Sure. Because their job, as I said, is improv. Yes, and. So we clone Lenin, and we run back to Russia. We have cloned your glorious leader, Lenin. We have created Mecha Lenin. <laughs> Would you like him to be returned to your country? And they said, yes, give us our glorious leader. Sure. So we send them <laughs> Mecha Lenin. To which we tell control, can Mecha Lenin steal the nuclear codes? So again, Control goes, well, if they accept Lenin, sure. We get the <laughs> message back that says they accept Lenin as their leader. And then a turn later, the, the guy says, you have their nuclear codes, and you also have half of America's nuclear codes. Because apparently <laughs> Russia bought them on the black market. <laughs> Which is also a thing. So we decide, well, we have these nuclear codes, just as we get them, we find out that in the UN, they're discussing nuclear disarmament. And we're thinking, oh no, we, get, we finally get the codes, and now they're going to all disarm. So we're sitting there thinking, oh no, because we had secret contact with the Vatican, who was in all these discussions. We were allowed to text them, which I thought was a little weird. I thought in-game we should have had to send communications that could be intercepted. But Control said we didn't have to because they were aliens, so it was okay. So we were texting them offline. They said, they're going to nuclear disarm. So we have the Pope in there telling them not to disarm. <laughs> During the course of this event, we've also had other meetings. We can do these giant global broadcasts. We all stand in front of the room and tell them what to do. And at one point, our main guy said, don't disarm because it's the end of times. And we can only take so many of you with us. And you might want those weapons at the end. So this is our message. It's the end times. That's why we're back. Our message changed throughout this entire game of what we were doing. He said, it's the, it's the end of... It's Armageddon. We need to go. But we can only take some of you. Because we're just trying to get them to blow each other up. <laughs> so we finally get the codes. All of a sudden, the door sprints open. Control runs in. He goes, you have one nuclear missile. Who are you shooting at? So you need to tell me now. No deliberation. So we decided to fire it at the UK. Because they had abducted one of our aliens and... Uh, questioned him. So he said, screw the UK, 
blow him up. So immediately the terror track jumps from like 170 to 240. Two, 250 is end game. Right. So this all happens. So we get real close to making them kill themselves. And they don't know it was us because they just know a missile fired from Russia to the UK. And no one knows why. And as a matter of fact, the people in the military room that we had, they all run back there and Russia wasn't there when the nuke goes off. <laughs> incredibly suspicious. So they immediately announce nuclear disarmament, which bumps them down from 240 to 190, and they start to quell the rebellion a little bit. And uh, they decide to disarm, and we never get them to actually nuclear each other. And I actually found out this is the first game where the human countries didn't immediately blow each other up. <laughs> It's fascinating because what ends up happening is everyone is giving new codes, but there's also a deadline for the game. The game ends after 12 turns. So around turns 10 and 11, people just start to... I have a button. trigger figures. Oh, everybody. And apparently everyone just starts firing. At the last game I played, uh, Japan was nuked again. Because apparently that's the only place that ever gets nuked, and it's sad. They nuked Tokyo, and... It really brought about world peace. And I remember being on the press team having to write, uh, nuclear weapon, nuclear attack brings about world peace. So, and they immediately again disarm, because once a nuke goes off, everyone goes, gets worried, and they all disarm. So, we didn't get the terror track to 250, but we were able to land these three giant machines in Antarctica. France was begging for us to take them with us. India was our other ally who built us temples and bases. So, the game ends after 12 turns, everyone lives, everyone was surprised that they didn't get blown up, and they didn't know... Actually, right at the last turn, the Pope gets in front of the people, and takes off his hat, and reveals that they all had three eyes also, because they were aliens all along. So, some people were surprised, some people were like, I knew it! <laughs> um, and we got a, a nice little epilogue at the end of what happens. Japan, like I said, they fired them off as AI. France was whisked away with the aliens when they left, and France goes, yay! And the hum and the control told them, yeah, it's not that great. You were used <laughs> for experiments as they were a space corporation. That's what they needed you for. And they said, they forgot India. And then we said, we didn't forget India. We didn't want to take them because they were actually nice to us. Um, so, as I said, there's no winner and loser at the end of the game. It was really just what happens afterwards. Oh, I should go back to the America thing. So the last turn, we go to see America. We send one of our guys and we decide we're so close on that terror track. This is before it's been nuclear disarmament. We decide we're going to try to blow up the president. So he says, I'm going to meet for a meeting with the president at 1600 Pennsylvania. He gets to the White House and they don't let him in, which we weren't very surprised by. And they give us a briefcase the guy tries to open it, and it actually gives him some kind of virus. So when we left the planet, we were hailed as glorious, you know, you did it for the company, but don't come home, you're all infected with a disease. So <laughs> here, here's all the money in the universe, but please stay away. That was kind of our end game uh, thing that happened. So to sum up, it was an awesome, giant event it wasn't about the game itself. It was really about the social engagement. 
and working with these people and coming up with the most zany ideas you could. Alien Control told us afterwards that we were one of the most fun groups they've ever had because we came up with so much crazy stuff and we all, we weren't fighting, we weren't yelling at each other in the room. They said that's happened sometimes. You have the aliens actually split into two different factions. He said, we had a blast playing with you guys. It was hard because the rules aren't firm. You're not playing Terra Mystica. You're not playing Splendor. Where there's, there are some specific rules, but a lot of it is more like D&D. It's much more freeform. It's much more of a DM guiding your game, telling this story, and everyone's just having a great time. They all do it for free. They're, they're all volunteering. We were there at 10 a.m. We weren't done until about 6.30. So they, vol- they give up their entire day and a few months to set up all of these games and machinations and schemes for everybody. And in the two times I've done it, I've had blast both times. I'm really hoping I can convince a couple more people to join me next time. This time I did bring my cousin along with me, and he was he had a blast. Uh, he was nervous at first to be hanging out in a room with a bunch of strangers. Neither one of us knew what to do in the game because as soon as we got that giant email chain from our teammates, it went crazy. I have a 180 email chain from these wow. guys. Yeah, really intense. So I said, I'm just here to do what I can. Uh, and play along and that was difficult because there were so many hands involved and so many moving pieces kind of like Artemis you really need a captain at the top to ha- to manage all the little teams manage the military, manage diplomacy make sure they're in agreement with what they're doing with one another so alright th- so I have a couple questions sure Okay. the first time you were a journalist you were running all around but you didn't really have a team. You were kind of a lone wolf. This time, you were definitely part of one side, but you spent. sounds like you spent a lot of time in one little room. Which did you like better? This was more fun. I think that we were did nothing but laugh for pretty much six straight hours because we were just screwing with the country so much through our communications and sending people around. I think this time was definitely more fun. However, if I hadn't gotten to be the press the first time I played, I would have felt a little disconnected naturally. Because I'm by myself. Well, not by myself. I'm in a room with a bunch of guys. But you feel like you're just sitting in a room and not playing an actual giant game. I wasn't going to the military room and moving pieces. I wasn't the one addressing the UN. So I felt disconnected even though I was involved. So not including the guys who were the fake Vatican, how many aliens were there? In our room, I believe we had ten. Yeah, that's a lot. And, like, none of you guys were going back into the game at all, really. Like, maybe one or two. Uh, three military advisors. And a couple of our guys were called for interviews. Towards the later game, early on it didn't matter. But after, say, turns... Six, seven, people start to get stir-crazy, and when requests for interviews come in, people take them just to get out of the room and go talk to someone. Not to only do that. It is a game mechanic where you can spread information. But I think people who normally wouldn't go for an interview, like, I'll go, just to get out of the room. Because there were so many people. The team was inflated. Normally there are only ten people on the alien team. 
we actually had 13. And then we made three of them part of the Vatican team. So I think we had 10, but maybe we picked up another one. So there were definitely too many people. And we'd jump around a lot. Sometimes you'd be working with diplomacy, and then you'd start doing a little more of the science. So you had your hands in a lot of things, which was good to always feel active. But later in the game, when we were just waiting, say turns 11 and 12, we were out of steam. We're really done with communications. We're just seeing if our master plan comes through after we fired the nuke in turn 11. So Andrew was on the alien team too? Yes. That was my cousin Andrew was in the room with me at the alien team. Uh, we were both working on diplomacy, sending out messages to these other countries. And also, we were able to give our spin. Even though I say we were doing diplomacy, we were in a room all together. So we were working with the military or with the overall narrative, coming up with an idea. One player, uh, this gentleman, Chris, kind of took the reins as the captain, if you will, and was do doing the best he could to manage 11 people. It can just be challenging. It's a bunch of strangers. We're throwing a bunch of wacky ideas at the wall and it was really difficult for him to manage all of us on the blind like that. He did an amazing job given how hard your job is up front when a couple people have never played don't understand how it works. So. That sounds fascinating. I wonder if there's anything like that going on in this area. I would love to do something like that. Yeah, I think you'd have fun I think next time I want to get enough people to take over a country. That's why I'm hoping I can get five people to sign up together because they'll keep you together. If you say, I'm five people, I'm a team, we'll be together. So I'm hoping to get you know, my brother-in-law, my cousin again, and two of our other friends to join in. And I think it would be really cool to be on that side of the room because the only thing I haven't done in the game. There is a list. You can follow them on Facebook the Mega Game Society, they're called. And tickets sell out pretty quickly. There was a fee. It was $75 a person. But for the experience, and they're really just using that money to rent out the space and to put the time into it. There's no profit to be made there. It was worth every penny. It's a hell of an experience. And if I know one that comes to your area, it'd be awesome. I'd love them to do it at BGGCon, but it would eat up your entire day. That's your thing. Right. But I'm sure it would go over well. They have all the rooms for it. And when else are you going to do it? It's like setting up a big game of Twilight Imperium or, you know, we talked about those puzzle rooms or time stories. That's the time to do something crazy. They've done it at a couple conventions like PAX and stuff like that. So Very, very cool. Yeah. I'm glad you had a good time. I could probably talk to you for another hour about it, but... We'll uh, we'll keep chugging along with the podcast. Yeah, yeah, definitely keep moving along. Uh, speaking of those big epic games, Mike, we never got to Pandemic Legacy last time. Tell me about Pandemic Legacy. <sighs> Pandemic Legacy is one of the coolest story experiences, and I think that's kind of the theme of 2015 gaming, which we'll go over in, in a week or two. Pandemic Legacy is really just Pandemic if you played Pandemic but with a million different curveballs that are thrown at you. We didn't really need to read the rulebook because it was purely Pandemic. If you know how to play Pandemic, you already know how to play Pandemic Legacy with a couple of minor variations. I'm going to avoid all spoilers 
everything I talk about here will just be simply the rule tweaks that will happen through the game. These are all in the instruction manual up front. If you've played Pandemic, as I know you have, there are uh, outbreaks that can happen throughout the game. The first major change in this game is that every time an outbreak happens, if you have a player in that city, they immediately gain a scar. Those scars can negative, will negatively affect your player, such as they can't leave a city with X cubes in it without expending a card, or they can't enter a city with, without cubes, or there's all these different variants that you will take a sticker and put it on your player character permanently. If a character ever gets a third scar, they are lost and cannot be used in the game. Wow. So, in the first game we played, our medic happened to be in a, in two different cities that outbroke, and has two scars on him permanently for the entire game. So we have to constantly decide: do we want to bring him along because a third scar will remove him from the game? So there's that risk. Ah. So, uh. Yeah. The other thing that happens every time a city outbreaks is you place a sticker on the board. And these stickers will escalate from 1 to 5. On one sticker, nothing really happens. It's just letting you know an outbreak has happened there. On two stickers, uh, the number 2 will be put on the board, and now riots break out. And now you can't fly into or out of the city directly. You have to walk into the city. Oh, no. Yeah. Then, as it escalates, worse and worse things happen. Eventually... You will not. It'll destroy research centers, and you will not be able to build research centers there ever again. And then, it's just worse and worse things. You can't walk in the city without giving up a card, and then you can't walk in the city without giving up a, two cards, and they have to match the color. Or I have to look at the actual rule, but it gets worse and worse as cities outbreak more and more. Wow. Uh. Yeah. What's great about that is in in original pandemic, if you knew you were going to win a game. You might let cities outbreak because they didn't affect your end condition. Okay, when that outbreaks, it's not going to affect anyone else, so I can leave it alone. Now you want to make sure to clean that city up because if it outbreaks this turn, it's just going to get worse over the course of this year when you're playing the game, these 12 months. So it behooves you to protect the world and play the game in a completely different way. Which is so cool. Yeah, it's really great. Those are the main rules that you'll learn when you first play the game. Uh, a lot of other stuff that happens will happen organically throughout the game, and a lot of these events are going to happen no matter what. So, Kane, when you eventually get to play the game, you're going to go through most of the same events I went through. I haven't seen that many branching paths yet that may come up later, but I feel that the experience will be similar with the actual events that unfold. Um, That's not a spoiler. It's just to warn people that I think if you play it a second time, you are going to know some of these things that are going to come out. So, unlike... I I don't know if that's similar to Risk Legacy. I don't know how much is branching paths or if the same X events are going to occur over the game. You played Risk Legacy. I did not. I think that had less of a narrative and was more about changing the world that you're creating. Um, whereas this is kind of ch- changing the story, 
I think it has more of a story than Risk Legacy had. Absolutely. This is much more of a narratively driven game. The main mechanic in the game, aside from obviously Pandemic, is this little deck of what they're calling Legacy Cards. And they're stacked in a way, in an order that you will reveal one at a time. And the deck tells you, stop, or reveal this card, or if this, then reveal this card. Right. So it, it will guide you through playing of the game. Um, <clears throat> in these little cards, they'll tell you to open up different dossiers or different boxes that are in the game, and inside maybe new stickers for new rules, and other new pieces that you will include or add to your game. In the game, in the beginning of the game, you have four characters. You have the medic, the researcher, the scientist, and the medic, the researcher, the scientist, and the dispatcher. I believe are your starting roles. And the generalist. You have five starting roles. And they have no stickers on them. They have the typical abilities that you're used to seeing in Pandemic. And over the game, you will be adding other roles to the game. Not, you're just going to... Because you need to do that since characters can be lost. Right. You need to have replacements. That's cool. Yeah, if a character is ever lost during the game, there are other little human characters. They're little cards that you use. They have no powers. They're just placeholders. So if you lose a character mid-game... Because if they get that wound in-game, they come off the board. You don't finish the round. They're done. Oh, man. So... <clears throat> I have torn up cards in the game. That will happen. Also, and you'll see this on the board, so it's not a spoiler, there will be places for multiple objectives. During certain months, you will need to do more than one thing. It's not always as simple as just cure the diseases. Wow. So, over the course of the game, there will be multiple objectives to complete. As if the game wasn't hard enough, curing a disease. Now the game is throwing other curveballs with things you need to do during play. Not everything is negative though. There are positives. Every time you finish a game you will either increase or decrease your funding and that will affect your event cards. So when you win the, the world thinks they're doing well. They don't need money so you reduce the event cards in the deck. <laughs> thematically. If you lose you will get more money because you just throw money at it and you'll get more event cards so every game you'll get to decide which event cards you'd like to use at different times just like always you'll select those uh, you'll also you can gain other permanent effects in the game positively when you finish a game there are these little reward stickers you can place on your characters maybe your hand limit goes up to 8 or maybe you can place a permanent research center on the board. And every game you play, that research center will spawn there, so you don't need to go and build it again. So every game you'll actually get two bonuses. And it's a little list of four different things you can do. You can get a character upgrade. You can make a uh, building on the board permanent. Or you can... Actually, you can mutate a disease positively if you eradicate the disease. Oh, that's cool. Right, so... Uh, and they're done in tiers, which is 
the first tier is you can cure a disease from anywhere on the board. So you don't need to be in a research center. And then it'll lead to other things down a chain. Now this is all in the original instruction manual. Nothing I'm talking about here is hidden inside of a box. I can confirm that I have seen so far two new mechanics that were never in Pandemic as far as I know or I've never played with them before. So that's cool. And we lost our first game. We blamed it on a poor deck shuffle. Normally when you play Pandemic you're supposed to build five piles of cards shuffle them individually and then stack them up. Right. This time we did that and then shuffled the whole deck together. Uh, which is dangerous because your epidemics can be back to back. Right. And when that happens, we went through four epidemics in the first half of the deck and it made us lose the first turn. Oof. Which yeah, not on the first turn, I'm sorry, the first round. We didn't lose in the first turn. We got to play. Which was unfortunate. We thought about running it back and doing it correctly but ultimately I decided we're not going to go undefeated anyway even though I wanted to be everyone thinks oh I'm so good at pandemic but then you remember it's still pandemic and it can still be really hard right so we lost our first game then we won our second game then we lost lost one so we wow. won we won in January we lost in February both games, and we won our first game in March. So we're now going into April for our next session, which I set up for two weeks from now. And we've learned some new rules. We've got some new mechanics occurring in the game. Again, I'm trying to keep it as vague as I can because I, I want you to get to appreciate those as they happen. I've put stickers in the rule book to change some rules, to add some rules. There are a lot of places where you'll do that. Yeah. And I don't know if you've seen, but Pandemic is now the number two game on Board Game Geek. Yeah, it is. It's soon to be number one, too, I'm sure. Um, it is rocketing up the charts, as I don't think any game ever has. Uh, it took Terra Mystica probably two years to get all the way to number two, where it settled. Uh, Pandemic Legacy has now replaced it as the new number two in about three months. Uh, its average rating is almost a nine. Uh, even people who didn't like Pandemic are loving Pandemic Legacy. Um, it will be the number one game of all time soon. I don't know if it'll be before the year is out, but it'll definitely be soon. The way the ratings, the way the ratings work is kind of wonky. They have a weighted rating system. So even if you just put, like, let's say you and I invented a game and we threw it up on there and we both gave it 10s, it wouldn't be the number one game of all time. Why not? Uh, there's a there's a weighting factor, uh, and that's W-E-I-G-H-T, weight, uh, where they have a lot of automatic fives, I think, that are, like, plugged into the rating and then... Um, I don't think they wait. Like I don't think they give more uh, credence to a user who's rated uh, fifty games than a user's rated five. But there might be some of that behind the scenes too. I'm not exactly sure. Um, I just know that it takes a lot of ratings to overtake another game. Um, 
And even though Pandemic Legacy's average rating right now is 8.83, which is by far the highest, uh, its geek rating is only 8.1. And to overtake Twilight Struggle... Twilight Struggle is an 8.21, so it's, it doesn't have that far to go. It'll be the number one game of all time soon, uh, which is pretty interesting. Um, just in the last couple of years, we had Caverna, which was a 2013 release, is now the number four. Terra Mystica, which was a 2012 release, is now the number three. And those took a long, long time to get there. Um and Pandemic Legacies just passed them both like they were standing still. I think what it is is that everyone playing this game just likes it. And it's obviously the top of the geek buzz, and a lot of people are playing it. And I know that sounds obvious. A lot of people like it. But I think that a way a lot of these games get rated is based on who's playing them. For example, I'm never going to play Twilight Struggle with my wife. I'm probably never going to play Twilight Struggle, honestly, ever, because it's not the kind of game I have an interest in. People who have an interest in that game are going to play that game and will rate it highly. But if everyone who's ever rated a game on Board Game Geek had to play every single game that there was, I don't think Twilight Struggle would be number one. I agree. Um, it's not a perfect system. I don't know that there is a perfect system. Absolutely not. And you don't need to be the top-rated game to be the most important game. No, no, definitely not. Um, but it's still... It's newsworthy. It's Absolutely. Noteworthy. Yeah. To be that fast. And I think it's the universal praise from every kind of gamer that already liked Pandemic. I believe Pandemic is one of the higher-rated games also. And when I say higher-rated, I mean in the top 100 or 2, which is pretty highly-rated. When you're looking at, I believe there are something like 80,000 games rated on Board Game Geek. If you're in the top 8,000, you're in the top 10%. So if you're sitting in that top 100, 2, 3, 4, 500 games, they're important. And I think that, as you said, there is no perfect system. But it's still noteworthy that Pandemic Legacy is getting this universal love sitting at the top. And since I've actually gotten to play it, I can speak to these ratings are legit. Have I, you hung a have you hung a rating on it yet? No, I don't think it's fair to rate the game until you're done, to be honest. Which is funny because I have games on my top twenty five list of all time that I've only played two or maybe three times. But I feel to fairly rate Pandemic Legacy, I'm going to need to finish it. I think if it got Less than a 9, I would be shocked. It will probably be a 10, because everything is so well put together. For all the praise I heaped on Time Stories for the storytelling aspect, and for all the praise I've already heaped on Pandemic is one of my favorite games of all time anyway, this is going to be that good. And... I can't wait to play it again. I'm going to be sad when it's done, and I hope they make another one. Well, uh, yeah, that was what I was going to say was, how happy, now that not only is this game a huge commercial success, it's also obviously a huge popular success. People are talking about it and telling their friends to play it and getting non-gamers to play it. And How happy are they that they called it Pandemic Legacy 
season one. <laughs> that is just like the equivalent of printing money. <laughs> I gotta tell you, that can't be an accident. I'm, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure, obviously it's not an accident. It would have passed the process. They had to be thinking ahead. I don't know if they knew how quickly it would be beloved, and I don't know how long it'll take them to make another one. And will season two just be another deck of cards? No, I think season... They, they're talking about 2017 for season two. I'm curious if they'll just replace the deck of cards and say, keep going with your current map. I know everyone's talked about how the game will be dead after you finish out the 12 months. As it stands now, I can keep using my board. If I never play Pandemic Legacy again and just play normal Pandemic on my board with the rules as they stand right now, I can keep playing this game, I feel, without a detriment to the game at all. I don't know what's going to happen after December is over. I don't know if the last card says, now burn the board, you're done. But as it stands right now, I can use this again. But everyone is saying that that is not the case when all is said and done, and I really can't wait to get there, and hopefully the next time we speak about this, you'll have gotten a couple games under your belt, and we can talk a little more spoilery about how things went for you guys. Yeah, I don't... None of us own it, I don't think. We don't really have any plans to get together and play it like that, so... Unfortunately. I thought you picked it up. No, I never picked it up. You should, because yeah. it's great. I know that cooperative play isn't always where you guys go because you have some really hardcore gamers and you have uh, a lot more games to get to the table. But from an experience perspective, this is going to sit on that shelf of time stories, stories. I just spent a half hour talking about the mega game and even though there was no winner or loser and it wasn't about the most creative resource management or the most creative mechanic like Zulkin's Gears, that is a story I will remember. Like the games I remember about Battlestar Galactica and the games I remember of The Resistance. I don't remember a single game I've ever played of, I don't know, Agricola or Sheriff of Nottingham. I'm not going to remember that moment. I'll remember Pandemic Legacy. I'll remember Battlestar Galactica. You don't remember the time when I took the two sheep and you didn't take the sheep and it really cost you four points? <laughs> I try to block it out of my memory. And that's why I think... I think 2015 really opens the door for narrative games rather than just board games. It's kind of the... It's, it's the next step next progression, if you will, that was started years and years ago, probably with Tales of Arabian Nights, and now you have a new game that just came out, uh, Above and Below, which I'm really intrigued by, which tells a story while also having resource management. It's a Euro storytelling game, and it just, the Kickstarter was maybe a year ago, the games are just getting out into the wild and a lot of positive buzz coming out from these games which yield stories rather than it's, it's a bigger experience rather than just who won and lost it's what happened so I'm excited to see what comes next I know the next legacy game is 
I believe it's Seafall is the next one they're working on, and I don't know if that's going to be released next year. I think they started Seafall before they started working on Pandemic Legacy, and it's still not out yet. I think it's ready, though. I think it's coming in its final version. Um, yeah, I agree with you about what an unbelievable year this has been for board games. Um, if this podcast had been going, it's something we wouldn't have been saying at Gen Con, I don't think. I think the feeling was that this was kind of a lackluster year for Gen Con, which is usually a sign that, that it's going to be a lackluster year for the the uh, hobby, but it turned out to be just the opposite. It's an unbelievable year for the hobby. I think we'll probably spend a lot of time on that next week. We'll do kind of a year in review, maybe some Christmas lists. Um, speaking of Christmas, before we go, I just want to touch briefly on my Secret Santa Uh I want to say thank you to Rob, who was my secret Santa, and went way overboard. I mean, uh, they set a a $50 uh, limit, which is supposed to be including shipping. And uh, my secret Santa sent me significantly more than that. Um, Really, really happy. I hope whoever pulled his name out of the hat got got him twice as much. I got the original Pandemic, uh, which was a glaring hole in my collection. Um, Despite how many times I played it, I didn't actually own it. Um, I got a Dominion set, uh, Intrigue, which I've never owned any of Dominion. Now I'll probably own all of it by the time you talk to me next time. Um, Really, really excited about that. Uh, I also got a promo set for Splendor, which is a game I enjoy with my family a lot. Oh, you were looking at that at BGG. Uh, yeah, it it was running like $25 on eBay, and uh, this person gifted it to me, so thank you, thank you very much for that. Um, really just really great. Uh, it's such a cool program. Um, it was so exciting. You know, he sent me like a personalized card, and there were there were candies in it, and, you know, it was just little touches that really made it uh, exciting. Um, so that's Rob. I don't want to give away his uh, BGG. Oh, he also gave me the expansion to the Castles of Mad King Ludwig. You really made out like a bandit. Yeah, I did. Um, was he? Is it actually Santa Claus? I don't think it was Rob. I think you actually got Santa Claus in your secret Santa. Yeah, no, uh, it was fantastic. Uh couldn't be happier. I, you know, I, I, I broke the fifty dollar limit with my, uh, with the person I was gifting to too. But after I opened up that box, I was like, ooh, maybe I should rethink this. Maybe I need to put in some more stuff, or you know. Um, it speaks to the community. The community uh, is it's generous different. and nice and great, and that's why I love being a part of it now. Yeah, me too. Um, I'm also thinking about if if we don't do something crazy like go to Gen Con next year, I may do the Board Game Geek uh, Memorial Day. They do that family convention, which is much smaller than the regular convention. I may do it and just like volunteer the whole time and like work in the library a couple hours a day and. Because I, you know, I don't have small kids or anything, which is kind of geared towards, um, and maybe just kind of 
you know, kind of get in with those guys a little bit. The uh, Aldi who runs the website and Jeff who runs the conventions. Um, you know, and just kind of give back a little bit. Just yep. kind of uh, work the whatever I can run for them, run tournaments or, you know, run the library and stuff. You live in the right city, so if yeah. I if I live down in Dallas, I'd go to them both also, but I don't. So I, I got to see. Uh, last year, I went to Vegas for the Pacquiao Mayweather fight around that time, so that's why I didn't do it last year. This year, we're kind of like not really talking about it, but talking around the fact that Gen Con is hanging out there. Uh, you know, speaking speaking of Gen Con, I don't know if you saw the news this week. They're actually going to expand Gen Con into Lucas Oil Stadium, the football stadium right next door. I know. They're moving the True Dungeon and a few other things into the football stadium to to give them even more room for the game convention. Which is... I've been begging them to do that at San Diego, even though I've only been there once, but... It was way too crowded. I went to San Diego Comic-Con a couple years ago, and I look across the street, and I see a giant baseball stadium. I said, gee, why don't we use that? And I think that, for whatever reason, they don't do it. It is usually during baseball season, so maybe that's why they can't get the rights to it, uh, to shut down for a couple days guaranteed. But this expansion is huge. Uh, True Dungeon is something I'd be interested to do also if we did go to Gen Con. It's one of those things, though, where you got to give up like a whole day of your convention. It's. I think it's like two to four hours. I don't think it's a whole day because they need to get a lot of people through it. Yeah, uh, I think I, I thought it was longer than that. Maybe, I, I'm not sure, but I, I like these experiences. You know, I can play Splendor at home, but I can't go through True Dungeon at home. Yeah, and. No, no. It would be an experience that I can't get. That's the same reason we do Artemis every year, even though I can do that at home. It's fun to do something I don't normally get to do with a bunch of strangers. So, but we'll see. It'd be cool if you went to the May, if you're around, to help them out. If not, you know, Gen Con is definitely a thought in my head. Yeah, it's kind of lingering in the back of my head, too. We'll see what happens. I know... uh... We're going to start up our YouTube channel in 2016, so maybe we'll have a little bigger footprint than just our tiny podcast. Um, we'll see what happens. Yeah, it's just the beginning. I mean, what has it been? Six episodes? It's not. Uh, it's just starting. We'll see how it goes, but I'm definitely excited for what the new year brings. Me too, sir. 2015 has been a very good board game year, and uh, we get to start this little thing. Uh, I think we've gone on and on quite a bit here. Yeah, I think it's time to get out of here. And before we do, we just want to do the usual plugs. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash wellplayedsir. Or you can email us at wellplayedsirpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, let's get out of here. Well played, sir. Well played, sir.